particularly to Colin, who does to illiteracy in Canberra, uh, what Chris Hammer does to innocent victims in Australian rural towns. Uh, Chris spent uh, 30 years in journalism, and I knew him when I first entered Parliament, uh, and he was a journalist and I was uh, a newly elected Member of Parliament. And so it was with some sadness uh, that I uh, uh, had a conversation with Chris where he said he was off to write a novel. Um, I thought this was lovely, much as some people go off to explore their passions for life drawing or for pottery. Uh, I wished him well, uh, assuming that it would basically come to nothing. Uh, his first book, Scrublands, was an instant bestseller, published in mid-2018, winning the prestigious UK Crime Writers John Creasy Award for debut crime novel. Uh, since then, he's published a book a year, making the seventh his sixth novel. His books have sold in the millions, and tonight's event is the first on a 25-city tour that, by my count, will have him visiting more, more Australian cities than the Prime Minister over the next month. So, Chris, my apologies for ever doubting you. First question, why crime? Mm. Um, I, I had written a couple of non-fiction books, which I really like doing, kind of like travel writing. Uh, a, as it happens, it, it gave me some of the ideas, certainly some of the locations for, uh, for my fiction books. But it was time-consuming and expensive. Um, I learned that I really liked writing books and could actually get them published, but I also learned that there was no money in writing books, just <laughs> as Andrew has alluded to. Um, but, uh, and I had, so I had to go back and get a real job. So I went back and was working in the press gallery, that's where I met Andrew. Um, in those days, I was interviewing him rather than the other way around, so this makes a, a nice change. Um, so I thought, look, I'll, I'll just just more or less as a hobby, as a, you know, maybe something to do in retirement, I'll have a go at writing some fiction. But I, I didn't feel confident enough to write literary fiction and I didn't know what to write about. I thought if I wrote a crime fiction book, um, it would at least give me a, a kind of plot, a skeleton to, to hang the rest of. Um, it, Crime fiction wasn't really my go-to reading, but I did admire a number of crime fiction authors. I always liked the hard-boiled detective stuff, the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler type stuff. But I think the big one was when I was a university student studying, uh, not here at the ANU, but when my, I did my first degree at Bathurst, I did a journalism degree. My writing teacher was a bloke called Peter Temple, um, who you might have heard of. Well, back then, <laughs> he hadn't written any fiction. Um, but then when the Jack Irish books came out, I really enjoyed them. And then his final two books, if you haven't read them, The Broken Shore and Truth are outstanding. Truth won the, um, the Miles Franklin Award, you know, Australia's most pre prestigious literary award. Um, now, I didn't think I could write as well as Peter, and I still don't think I can write as well as Peter, but that was the... That I thought, well... He could, he's shown me how much you can do in a crime book, that there's more to it than simply the plot, the whodunit, the puzzle. You can have all, other, all sorts of other aspects there. And I've got to say, I'm really happy that I, that I you know, I, I had a go at writing crime fiction because the more I do it, the more I enjoy it. Tell us more about uh, Peter Temple and about what he taught you at Bathurst. Peter, Peter would not be allowed to teach now. He would... <laughs> He was absolutely excoriating. He, he would just rip the students to shreds. You'd get your essay back and it'd just be covered in red and would have comments like, get a trade. <laughs> or, go to hospital immediately, I suspect brain damage. <laughs> when he, when he, uh, we, we've got a, a sort of a private Facebook group um, all these old friends at Bathurst, many of whom, uh, it was pretty much the only journalism course in Australia back then and had a reputation as the best. And a lot of my friends became very, very prominent journalists. And I, when he died, we were exchanging these sorts of stories. And Jane Hutchin, who is a prominent ABC reporter, you know, uh, um, Beijing correspondent, Middle East correspondent, she'd kept one of these essays. And 
Um, Jane's a real high achiever, and, I th and <laughs> the amazing thing about it, she kept an essay for 40 years where she got 40%. <laughs> so, but he was a great stylist. I can still remember things he taught us. He wasn't teaching us how to write news. He's, it was more like news features or magazine features. Um, and although he could be, he could really cut you down, he was also had a wonderfully dry sense of humour. He was South African. He'd only just arrived uh, from South Africa, um, where he essentially had been a journalist and had found it too uncomfortable to live there and practice being a journalist. This is in the apartheid years. Um, the remarkable thing, if you read his books, for, for someone from South Africa, he so captures the Australian vernacular. Uh, if you remember the Jack Irish series, there's the old Fitzroy fan club, the old guys in the pub. I mean, it's so very Australian. Um, and yet he, I guess in some ways, he was an outsider observing. So he, he, was a, he was a big influence. It was a very small university, so there's pretty much one bar. So you'd be in a, in a tube, and then, you know, later on you'd be in the same bar talking. He was a very, in that sense, he was a very personable and, and amusing sort of guy. You're somebody who adheres to the maxim that all great writers should be strong, keen readers. Uh, what were the, who were the writers who made an impression on you, and particularly in crime? Well, in crime, it was, as I say, um, uh, that sort of hard-boiled detective. You know, the, these are the books that inevitably, when they turned into films, you know, starred Humphrey Bogart, those real American noir sort of books. I was fortunate a few years ago um, to be invited to do Andrew's position and interview uh, Michael Connolly, who is an author I, I like, you know, the great American crime author. He's actually uh, published in Australia by Alan and Owen, my publisher, so I was invited to interview him. And he said that, um, uh, you know, Los Angeles is very much a character in his books. These are that <coughs> the Harry Bosch books in particular. And he said before he starts writing each book, he goes to Chandler's The Big Sleep and reads Chapter 13. And so I said, well... What happens in chapter 13? <coughs> he goes, well, nothing. That's the point. It's, it's just uh, Philip Marlowe driving around Los Angeles and it's the impressions of Los Angeles. Of course, this is the Los Angeles of, I don't know, the 1930s, the 1940s, something like that. And again, I think that's what I liked about those books was the style. You know, much lampoon now, of course, that sort of gumshoe detective, but... I just like the, the, how evocative it was of place and of, of people. And place is a big feature in your writing. Do you s find yourself needing to spend time in uh, rural New South Wales country towns in order to, to prepare? Do you go to those places to, uh, to write? Do you like writing while, you tra while you're travelling? Um, I do try and get... I, I have reported quite a bit from the countryside. Um, <coughs> Some of the locations for my books uh, were suggested uh, for that non first non-fiction book, <coughs> or both non-fiction books, really. Um, I travelled all through the Murray-Darling Basin in the summer of 2008-2009, which was right at the height of the millennium drought, you know, towards the end of it where things were getting really severe. Um, I spent a week in a little town called Wakul, and that gave me the idea for Scrublands, the setting for Scrublands. The towns are actually quite different. Um, Riversend, in the, the fictional town in the book was much more compact. But they do have two things in common, and that's when I went to a cool irrigation town, and the river was bone dry. So imagine, you know, the economy of the town totally depended on irrigation and not having any water. So it was a really desperate sort of place. That stuck with me. And I also visited um, the Barma Millawa Forest, which is the world's largest river red gum forest, down just above Echuca uh, on the Murray River. And, uh, and it was in drought. It, it was in bits of it were dying. Um, and then I had the idea of going back 
that's that turned into the tilt because people at the time had told me, oh, in its natural state, this is beautiful. It's like a wetlands, like you know, like the Everglades or something. And I, I just couldn't visualise that. So when I heard that there was water going back into the forest in these past few La Nina years, I went, oh, I've got to go and see that. And it was stunning. So I do uh, like to immerse myself in the place. In my book, Treasure and Dirt, it's set in a, um, an opal mining town um, but I haven't really been to an opal mining town. I had this idea of setting a book out in out in the desert somewhere at one of those big, huge corporate mines, you know, with fly-in, fly-out workers. And I thought that would be good because an isolated, self-contained community, if a series of murders starts happening, you would know that the killer is in, in amongst that community. And I plan to drive across to uh, South Australia uh, to somewhere like Olympic Dam, see the Flinders Ranges, and then COVID hit and all the borders shut. Um, and I was uh, just down at the local shops having a coffee and I saw a, a woman wearing an opal pendant. I went, oh, an opal town, that would be brilliant because I knew, um, I knew enough about opal mining that they're typically you know, one-man bands or partnerships, very small, or family operations, very small. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. I could have that. And uh, I could also have one of the big corporate mines nearby and contrast the two. Um, and, the of course, the border to New South Wales was open. So I, I went up, drove up to um, Lightning Ridge and spent some time up there. And that was, that was really fascinating. Um, so this one, uh, without giving too much away, the seven, it's set in an irrigation area. And I had been, I had done some reporting years ago out at, uh, near um, Griffith and Leeton. And if you're familiar with those areas, you can see there's echoes of it in this book. Now, this book's in a slightly, it's a fictional irrigation town called Uundri or Irrigation District. It's not really based on any real irrigation district because typically the ones in New South Wales were developed by government um, and this is a privately established scheme um, by set up by seven prominent families um, going way back to the First World War really and that's the title of the book is The Seven and, and part of it is about just the power and influence that they wield in that, in that community. So, but it does have echoes of Leeton um, you know, a lot of the buildings are like Art Deco. If you've ever been to Griffith and Leeton, uh, designed by uh, Walter and Marion Burley Griffin, um, and you know, lots of roundabouts and a few familiar sort of touches like that. Um, the Art Deco building. So I did, yeah, I did get get out there last year and have a potter about. So I love the Canberra connection with a, a Burley, Burley Griffin designed town acting as the inspiration for you, Wandery. And you also have in the start, at the um, beginning of the book, uh, one of your classic uh, maps of the town, which uh, Alexander Plotnik has, uh, has drawn. Uh, to what extent is, is mapping out the town important to you for, uh, for thinking about uh, the story itself? It actually helps. The maps came about when I was writing Scrablands part-time. Um, and a lot of writers, I think crime fiction writers, there's going to be a lot of material that doesn't end up in the narrative in the book. So most people are going to have some sort of timeline where each character was at certain times. So for example, when was the killer seen? Did they have enough time to kill someone, get dressed, return to the party, all that sort of type of stuff. But because Scrublands was set in a fictional town, I started sketching it out simply so the geography of the town remained consistent, so that you know it wasn't a five-minute walk from the motel to the services club in chapter two, and you know a 45-minute walk in chapter <laughs> 23. And it was only at the last minute that I decided to put the map in when I sent it to the agent and then to the publisher. Uh, we toyed around with a few different you know, getting a cartographer to do a map uh, look, just looked terrible because for a cartographer, of course, accuracy is everything. And this was a made-up town. So uh, Jane, the publisher, 
found this guy, uh, Alex Potochnik, who, um, uh, who's done all the maps, um, lovely bloke. Uh, the only trouble is, he, but when he did Scrumlands, he'd only been in Australia for six months um, from Slovenia. So all the examples of his artwork were, were Dubrovnik and small towns in the Balkans, that sort of thing. So um, he, and, and when he did Trust, he'd never been to Sydney. So I was, I was sort of supplying him photos and whatever. Anyway, for, you know, and now they've become... I can't, I can't imagine writing a book now without a map. So, Chris, one of the really notable things about your, uh, your books is the opener. And, and it reminds me of the fact that uh, economists have noted how Spotify has changed music. Uh, Spotify artist only gets paid if their uh, song is listened to for 30 seconds. So every song now has a really grabby start. And your books have extraordinarily grabby starts. Uh, the uh, priest killing five people in the opening of Scrublands, the uh, discovery of the uh, uh, crucified body in the opening of Treasure and Dirt, uh, the, uh, the uh, opening of The si Seven is similarly grabby. Is that uh, a particular stylistic thing, or is this also about how people buy crime fiction? Are you envisaging a reader flipping through a f uh, a f the first few pages in the bookstore before deciding whether to pick up your, your novel? It's true. Most of the um, most of the books have a prologue, and it's told from a different point of view than the main text. Um, and it do, yeah, the purpose is to grab people's attention. Um, I'm certainly not the only writer to do that. When I was writing Scrublands, I had uh, Martin Scarston, the the journalist, arri arriving in this dying town, and it's forty degrees, and there's no one on the street, and in some ways it's very visual, but in other ways it's really slow. Um, and he's there uh, to, to, to do a, an anniversary story, how the town is coping a year on from this terrible tragedy where the priest shoots the parishioners. Um, and I, and then I was, so I was trying to pick up the pace, but you can't pick up the pace of someone arriving you know, in a deserted town. And it was only after about the seventh draft I went, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll actually write the scene where the priest shoots the people. So it's a, it is a dramatic start. Um, Silver doesn't have a prologue like that, but that's because there's a body in the first chapter anyway. Um, it, it's, it's good to, to, to make a strong start. I think it's, in many ways, it's more important to have a strong finish so everything comes together. Um, so the reader's satisfied. All too often in a crime book, you'd be left, you'll either guess what, you know, the whodunit aspects, or it'll be so outlandish that, you know, or, or you've dumped all this new information 10 pages before the end of the book. Um, that's important. But also is the middle. Your books, not just crime books, but many books can sort of, you know, drag a little bit in the middle. So that's something else... I try and work on, but you don't want it to be apparent to the reader. You know, you don't want the reader sort of seeing through how the sausage is being made. The books I really love to go to go back to an earlier question doesn't really matter the genre. I like those really immersive books where you where you when you're reading it, you kind of enter a different world. You you lose yourself in the book, and it takes you away from you know, all the, the, the stresses and concerns of your daily life. And in doing that, trying to do that, plot's important, but so is the setting. So the setting's almost like a stage. You're building this world, inviting the reader in. So then there's a character, then there's a plot, and you want to, as I say, keep the pace going so it doesn't drag too much in the middle. And you maybe want a few things that are a bit, you know, thought-provoking. You know, it's not just all action, action, action. Um, the interaction, the relationships between the characters. So if you can get all that working well, yeah, it's almost like the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do, or what I at least aspire to do. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully it all kind of comes together at the end and people enjoy it. So you've touched on two aspects of why crime has been becoming a more popular genre among readers in recent uh, recent years. Uh, uh, one is the sort of the novelty of death, which is quite 
unfamiliar in a world in which uh, uh, murder is incredibly rare. I remember once reading one in nine people in the Paleolithic died a violent death, whereas uh, murder, murder now is almost un, uh, unknown. Uh, the other interpretation is that we really like crime because we're, it, it activates the puzzle-solving part of our brain. Uh, do you buy either of those theories or do you have your own theory as to why crime's becoming so popular in the modern era? It's a, a bit of both. Um, <laughs> well, um, you say murder's incredibly rare. Um, when, when Scrublands came out, uh, there was a review from America and in Scrublands, you know, at one point, all the national media descend on this little town as the story develops. And the review said, it's an interesting observation of the difference between our two countries that, you know, a, a shooting with such a relatively low body count would attract the attention of the national media. <laughs> I, one thing I do think about crime, there, there is the puzzle element for sure. And it's a broad church. So you get everything from the action thriller to the psychological drama to, you know, that classic golden age type of crime, the Agatha Christie, where it's, it's often about solving the problem. Um, I think there's more, more to it than that. One thing I would say about crime fiction in the modern era, the murders are typically committed by someone in a community. Uh, so it's not just, you know, some psychopath or, you know, serial killers, I think, of uh, maybe, you know, not as popular as, as uh, killers as they were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and if you do that, you've, you've really got to give a good reason why some... Because, you know, people like us, murdering someone is really, really extreme. So you've got to be able to give reasons for it. So there's a kind of psychological element to that. But the other thing I've noticed with crime fiction is it's maybe more than literary fiction, it touches on some of the issues um, of the day. So a writer like Michael Connolly will touch, you know, with a fairly light touch, but, but touch on, you know, the extreme um, inequalities of modern American life. Uh, he's got a line, you know, if there's... If there's not justice for everyone, there's justice for nobody sort of thing. And so you can touch on different issues. So, so in the tilt, you know, you've got the anti-vaxxer type people. Um, in, in this, you've got some of the issues around um, uh, political donations and the opacity of that and, and water trading, which is a big issue. You know, the, tri the attempts to reform the Murray-Darling Basin. Now... In no way is a lecture on that because that would be really boring and slow the pace. But you can touch on these social issues. So, that, you know, um, post Me Too, there's a lot of books that touch on um, domestic violence and violence against women and often in sort of new and imaginative ways. So you get a book, instead of it being all about the detective or all about the perpetrator, you know, they're much more, you know, give a greater voice to the victims. So, so that's... I think you do see that trend in crime fiction um, in Australia, but also internationally. And there's, uh, to my pleasure, a lot of uh, economics uh, spread through this book. Uh, permanent versus temporary water, how monopsony buyers lead farmers to establish ag co-ops, uh, economies of scale in la land holdings. A lot of that research that you did in, in looking at the, uh, uh, the, in your book, The River, uh, seems, to, uh, seems to show up here. And, and a lot of your interest in politics, the idea of setting up a, a new political party to challenge the nationals and trying to work out whether it should focus on ideological extremism or, or focus its, uh, its geographic spread. Do you find yourself sort of mining some of that, uh, some of that deep knowledge about economics and politics as you, as you go on and write more books? Yeah, be be before I, um, <coughs> before I went, uh, left and, and went and wrote The River, the non-fiction book, um, I was covering the environment for the age uh, in the press gallery. And the two, and this is, this is um, in the early days of the Rudd government, uh, around uh, 2007, 2008. Um, Penny Wong was the environment minister, uh, 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 and so was Peter Garrett. Um, and the two big issues, environmental issues of the day, was what to do about the Murray-Darling Basin and how to reform it. 
and what to do about climate change. So, um, you know, 15 years later, and, you know, haven't, haven't things changed? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I do find, having been a journalist for a long time and, and working, you know, on and off in the press gallery, does give me a little bit of an insight into how the world operates, you know, the, how politics works behind closed doors. And I don't just mean the formal politics as in federal parliament, but s you get the same dynamics in state, in ca uh, um, you know, in local councils, but also in businesses and communities. I mean, politics is everywhere. I mean, most of, most of the people here, you know, in your workplaces, you'll have seen politics operate, you know, how people form alliances and all of that sort of thing. So um, it is interesting, though, that every now and then so someone will say, well, you spend all that time covering politics. So I first worked as a journalist in the old Parliament House in 1987 and last worked in the, in the current Parliament House in uh, 2017. So that was a 30-year gap and people say, um, well, why don't you write a political thriller? And I, th I suspect it's because, well, partly because I'm not sure it's that thrilling, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but also it's possibly because I know I know too much about it. And people would say, oh, is this character meant to be, you know, Andrew Lee or is, that, or is it meant to be, you know, Tony Abbott or is it meant to be, you know, Scott Morrison? Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe sometime, is anyone particularly you'd like me to kill off? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a list later. <laughs> uh, you came, just extending on the theme, you came late to novel writing. You were 58 when Scrublands was published. You're 63 now. What's the, what are the advantages of coming late to novel writing? How do you write differently now than if you had gone straight into being a novelist out of Bathurst? Well, I tried to write a book in my 20s and it was just appalling. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have the sense of language. I didn't know what I wanted to write about. Um, you know, it's there in the bottom drawer somewhere and people will say oh you should try and resurrect it you should revisit it no <laughs> i mean it's so it is it is so bad um this though i find is a very common story um some of the most successful writers in the world have one or two or three unpublished books and some of them have have a couple of published books before they you know get the, the break breakthrough book um the other big advantage I had was having written those non-fiction books that helped uh, refine some of the craft of, of writing. They, they, they call it narrative non-fiction. So it's a little bit like travel writing. So I am actually telling a story. It's not like an essay or a, a chronological recitation of facts or something like that. So that helped hone the skill. But as I said, you know, I, uh, I'd learned three lessons from that. One was I could write a book. Two, I enjoyed writing a book. And three, there was no money in writing books. So when I wrote Scrublands, my expectation was, look, I think I might be able to get it published. I can write a book that's, that's it's good enough. But that's all I thought. And so I think that freed me from a lot of the constraints that many aspiring writers have. So I wasn't trying to impress an agent or a publisher. I wasn't trying to write a bestseller, and often if you do that, you know, it's going to become, it'll be derivative. Um, I wasn't trying to win a prize. If you try and do that, you know, it'll, it'll um, sound as if you're trying to impress people rather than being authentic. So I think my big advantage was I didn't, I didn't worry about any of that, and in a way it worked to my advantage. And since then, um, I, I now have the great uh, privilege of being a full-time writer. And people say, how you, can you possibly write a book a year? Well, it's because I don't have to you know, go to a full-time job. And most published authors in Australia, there, there are surveys um, that reveal the average annual income from writing is something like $12,000 a year. So people are writing their books, but they, you know, they, they've got in full-time jobs, and they've often got young families. So you know, my kids are 
Um, you know, my son's 25, my daughter's about to turn 21. So I've, I've got more time, but I also have this sense of freedom. Um, having somehow kind of fluked it with scrublands, I'm trying to make the, you know, I'm trying to make the most of it. Let's delve in more to that uh, creative process. Uh, you've talked about how there's two kinds of writers. There's plotters versus pantsers. Uh, and you're a, uh, a pantser on this definition. Uh, explain that a little, a little more for us. Okay, so plotters is, um, and you get particularly get this kind of division amongst crime writers. So plotters itself, evident, they plot everything out in advance and then they start writing the narrative. And some people do it to, to, to a, in great detail. So I've heard Jane Harper say that she'll do 100 pages of treatment before she starts writing the story. Um, other, I've heard American writers who will do like three or 400 pages of treatment. And I'm thinking, why don't you just write the book? <laughs> the pants is right by the seat of their pants. And that's me. Um, unfortunately, that's me because it sounds so much more efficient to be a plotter. Um, because you know exactly what you're doing. With Scrublands, I threw out hundreds of thousands of words. Uh, and I still go through that process. I try and plot things out, but then as I'm uh, writing, I get a better idea. Or the story takes on a life of its own. Sometimes it feels as if the story is already there. I've just got to discover it. I've just got to sort of like, almost like a an archaeologist scrape away and scrape away and scrape away until the, s the story takes shape or a sculpting on chip 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 um, and so that's my process and every time I write a book I feel like I'm reinventing the wheel um, hopefully I'm getting better at some aspects of it I think I'm better now re uh, realizing when something's not working um, I also don't polish the language endlessly uh, and then throw that bit out. I'm probably going to throw it out before I do that extra work. Um, so I'm getting maybe slightly better at it, but I'm still not very efficient. After Scrublands, you referred to yourself as a serial killer of your own words. Uh, did you have to kill a lot of words in uh, producing The Seven? Yeah, The Seven was quite difficult. There's, there's three timelines. If you've if you read the tilt, the tilt's got three timelines, but they came to me more naturally. So in the seven, there's the present day sort of point of view character is Ivan the detective. Nell's in the book and plays a prominent role, but but he's the point of view character, so it's pretty straightforward. Then there's a, a young man, um, uh, the eldest son in one of these powerful families, the seven, expected to inherit his his family property uh, and that's set in the 1990s and he's he's uh he's doing a history degree so he's investigating the origins of the scheme and then there's a story written through letters of a young servant girl in the years leading up to and during the first world war once i had those point of view characters the, the story unfolded reasonably smoothly, but it took me a long, long time to settle on those as a point of view characters. I had other people who I thought might be, and then I, and including one I was, I developed quite a long way in, and she doesn't even appear in the story at all. So, so you, you're starting to see what I mean about it. it's not a very efficient way to go about it. But what, so, I wondered at one stage whether I'd ever get a book at all because I just couldn't get the the storylines to congeal. But once I had the point of view characters, it started to you know it, it started to come together. Your plots also uh, crisscross uh, across different uh, different novels. The, the th first three, the Martin Scarsden books, are sort of designed to be read in order. The Ivan and Nell series, more kind of standalone. Um, there's a lovely moment in the seven where uh, there's reference to Scrublands leading one character to say, ah, never read the book, uh, which I, I think was the one of the lines that made me laugh out loud. Do you, do you plot much across books or is that more opportunistic as you're writing? Yeah, no, that's definitely opportunistic. I can't, I, can't, I can't think of the plot in advance of the book I'm working on, but I do like revisiting characters. So 
Ivan in the Ivan and L books is is in the first three Martin Scarson books. He's a very minor character, and some of the characters from the Martin Scarson books, uh, including Martin, make sort of cameo appearances in the Ivan and L books. And I'd really like that. It's kind of fun. I'd, you know, Michael Connolly again does that with a, you know his main character is Harry Bosch, but he's got a a lawyer character Mickey Haller. And he's got a journalist character, Jack McAvoy, and sometimes they're the point of view characters. But I really suspect with me it came from uh, my childhood love of Tintin books. Um, my brother w w was a mad collector of Tintin books. And they have, you know, the main characters are always there, you know, Tintin and Captain Haddock and all of that. But then with the bad guys, you know, every three or four books, they'll pop up again. I, and I, I, I like that idea. Urge is brilliant in that way. And I think it's, it's one of the, th the things my boys enjoy about reading the Tintin books is, is finding those little cross-references. Uh, do you adhere to, uh, to a, a daily word target when you're ri writing, Chris? No, not at all. Uh, look, so, some writers do. Uh, and it's because, because I haven't plotted it out and it's sort of evolving. There'll be days when it's, it's magic, Un unfortunately, fairly rarely. And it's just flowing. It's almost like you're channeling. It's, it's like you're taking dictation and you can write thousands of words. But then there'll be other days when I run into a problem. I'll have written myself into a corner. I can't work out where the plot's going. And so I'll just end up staring at the screen and maybe writing 100 words or something. Um, and then I'll leave it and I'll go, I'll go and do some exercise or you know, just a f you know, daily chore sort of stuff. Um, I'll go for a swim maybe uh, and then the ideas will, will, will come to me then. Uh, I like working when I'm travelling. Uh, so some writers like to be secluded away you know, and they have a writing place like they have a particular study or something. I think I'm, I'm uh, more productive you know, on a train to Sydney or an airport or you know, even sitting in a cafe or something. Um, but I do think those days, I mightn't have written a lot of words, but they're just as important in the end result as those days where the words are really flowing. And those three decades as a journalist, I presume they ensure that you never get writer's block? Um, true, I haven't had writer's block. I mean, I have those days where, <laughs> where it's not working and I'm not writing much, but it, that's different than writer's block. That's just me trying to work through a problem. One of the things I learned uh, as a journalist, and I would certainly sort of say this to any aspiring writer, of, often you'll get a writer and, I, and I'll do the first couple of um, chapters and then I'll just slow down and hit, hit a sort of roadblock and I'll be waiting for inspiration. Now, as a journalist, you can't wait for inspiration. You, know, you can't ring up the editor and say, oh, I'm not going to file a story today because I'm not feeling inspired. You know, it just doesn't work. And what happens, and this happened in journalism too, some of the days when you f least feel like it are the days when you can produce your best material. And that'll happen with me. You know, I'll, I'll be tired or I'll be a bit, bit sick or I've had a late night or something. I'll sit down to write and I think, oh, this is going to be a bit pointless, but do it anyway. And then, you know, half an hour, an hour in, some idea happens and you write and another one happens and then you know four or five hours later you go you know got a few thousand words and go wow that was okay so yeah that and that i think is is one of the advantages of being a journalist another is how uh, you get used to being edited uh, particularly long form television is really brutal you know you do a paper edit and you have a rough cut everyone comes in the edit suite and just rips it to bits you know so Compared to that, you know, editing in books is incredibly respectful and polite <laughs> and civilised. Hard to believe, isn't it, that publishing is more civilised than journalism? Uh, so, yeah, there, <coughs> there are some benefits from having been a journalist. You uh, said in an interview a decade ago, I'd rather produce work I'm proud of than getting ahead. Have you found sticking to that harder or easier as your fame has grown? Well, I, look, th the most important thing is the book, is the work. And, you s and that's, for me, that's what it's all about. 
So I, fortunately for me, I quite enjoy doing this sort of thing and doing the prom promotional stuff and meeting people. Uh, some writers don't. They're, they're real, uh, they're very shy and um, the reason they're writers is they want to be kind of reclusive and suddenly they're, they're meant to be out, you know, promoting stuff. I, I enjoy doing this, but in the end, the aim is not to do more of this. The aim is to write better books. And do you think you're going to uh, to move now to a new series? We've had these uh, these three Martin Scarston uh, books. We've had the three Ivan and Nell books. Is there uh, another? Uh, you know, you 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 do have religious icon iconography going through. So I'm guessing rules of three are uh, are not coincidental. Uh, is there uh, another uh, tr uh, holy trinity of uh, of Chris Hammer books coming in the way? I'm actually thinking the next one will be another um, Ivan and Nell book. I think there's a bit more to explore there with, with those characters. One of the things about the books, which, which I learned by accident writing Scrublands, I thought you know, plot was everything. And then as I wrote it, I, you know, it became apparent that setting was really important and the characters. But one thing that almost took me by surprise and I really liked and I think uh, readers liked was the emotional story of Martin. You know, he's a different character, a different man at the end of Scrublands than he is at the start. He's, he's becoming more self-aware and more open and he's, he's entered into a proper adult relationship, all the rest. And that, and that then suggested to me, uh, why is he like this? Why has he been like this? And that suggested the book Silver, where, where he goes back to his old hometown. In Scrublands, he's a total stranger, doesn't know anyone, never been there before. In Silver, it's him confronting the traumatic events of his youth. And that in turn then suggested, oh, well, what about Mandy's partner? What's her story? And it was after that that I thought I could easily write another story with those two characters. But I think readers might feel cheated if it then became just a kind of a, a whodunit type story without that emotional depth in it. That's why I thought I'll give them a break and I'll just write a standalone book which was Treasure and Dirt. And But the thing is then with Ivan and Nell the same sort of thing happened. It was like oh there's more to these characters I want to know more about them. And so I think the next one will be, uh, which I've already started you know, mulling over will be another Ivan and, and Nell one. And then I'm thinking I might go back and do another Martin Scarston book. So, and it, but I do think there, there is, um, I would like to write just some standalone books rather than, rather than series. Um, but I do like, I do like the crime books. I do like the ones set in the, uh, in regional areas. Trust is set in Sydney and I, I, yeah, I like doing that. Um, so I, I spent quite a long time as um, you know, a roving foreign correspondent. I was having this conversation just the other day because I was um, w with uh, my old friend Michael Brissenden, who, who I'm sure you know from 7.30 Report, whatever. Um, but he's an old friend of mine. We went to high school together here in Canberra. But we were with a couple of um, a BBC and a, and a Channel 4 foreign correspondent. And we're, and we're talking about you know all the places we've been, and so, and, and this guy Jamie said, well, why don't you, why don't you do a, a kind of a spy thriller? Because you know you're reported from Moscow and Beijing and Washington and all these places, and it's a good question. And I kind of know a fair bit about that world, but it's just not that interesting to me. And I think it, part of that is because those books tend to be sort of more action thriller books than about relationships and internal struggles and whatever. We've got time for a couple of audience questions. So if anyone's got a question, please uh, line up at the microphone over here. Uh, oh, sorry, and, uh, and over the other side, Colin's, uh, Colin's reminding me. Uh, so as you go to research the next book, do you think it will involve a, a trip to a place in, in order to, to figure out a, a location that will centre things? Or do you think it's going to involve chatting with pe with people is there a chance that uh, uh, an encounter with someone this evening will make them into a uh, character for your, ne for your next book where will that uh, wh wh what do you draw on as a sort of uh, source of inspiration there 
Yeah, I've booked, I've, I've booked an Airbnb in November. Um, I'm restricted with Ivan and Nell because they're New South Wales Homicide Police, so I can't really <laughs> take them into Victoria or, or, or uh, yeah, outside the jurisdiction. Where that's one of the great things about Martin because he's a journalist, he can go anywhere, including internationally. Um, but I do have a location in mind in, in New South Wales, but um, we'll see if it develops or not. And do you find, so I mean, one of the sort of theories of creative careers is that uh, those authors who peak young think kind of James Joyce tend to be much more plot driven. Those who peak later think, you know, Dickens tend to be more character driven. Uh, do you think the characters are going to play an increasing role in your stories as you, uh, as, as you move on? Look, I, I, think, I think characters are, are really important. So are settings, and, and the setting is, um, you know, that world-building aspect. Mm. I, uh, I shared a, a stage when Scrublands came out. I went to the UK uh, with Anne Cleese, who's the author of, you know, the Vera Stanhope books and Shetland. And she said, oh, um, setting is far more important than plot. My take is they're all important. So you're not going to put in a lousy plot if you can help it. You're going to try and put in the best possible plot. But many of the books, the crime books that people like, they like reading about relationships and motivations uh, and they want characters that they can identify with or at least have some of the sort of reaction to. Maybe they'll hate them, maybe they'll love them, you know, whatever. So my... my current theory is you is that one that the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts but ca characters i think are really important and not just in crime fiction in any sort of fiction what sort of reaction do you get from law enforcement readers um they typically really good which surprises me see one of the reasons when i wrote scrublands that i, I decided to have the protagonist as a journalist is because I knew about journalism. And strangely, there's a quite a few crime writers who are former journalists. A lot. So, um, you know, in, in Australia, Jane Harper's a former journalist, Michael Robotham's a former journalist, you know, Michael Brissenden, Tim Ayliff is a journalist at the moment, is writing crime thrillers. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, Michael Connolly was a journalist, Val McDermott, whatever, they didn't pick journalists as protagonists but a journalist is actually a very good protagonist because you do have a license to go and, and you know stick your nose in where it's it's not wanted but when <coughs> when i decided to give martin and mandy a rest and write the book that became treasure and dirt i thought well i can't have another journalist as a protagonist because it'll seem like martin scars than light so anyway, I came up with these two uh, detectives. Uh, I was about halfway through it when I suddenly realised I had no idea how you know police work really, um, because as a journalist, I'd never been a, really been a police reporter or a you know a court reporter or anything like that. And so I thought, hmm, should I down tools and go and do a lot of research? And a lot of writers really love that part of the process, the research. And, you know, I'm good at it. I know how to do it. I was a journalist for 30 years. But, but maybe because of that, uh, you know, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit over it. So I don't really research. I just kept writing the book and decided instead of trying to research all that in advance, I, I would write the book. i try and get it seem emotionally authentic. And then I would go back if you like, and retrospectively almost fact-check it. So I did. I, I, I got in contact with a, um, a former homicide detective and I, eh, he was really good. He, 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 um, I, I said, for example, oh, is it true, you know, in the police cars on the computer you can pull up people's, you know, identification and check rego and all of that? And he said, oh, no, it's all on your mobile phone now. So they got, you know, they've got a special app on their mobile phones where they can do all, you know, to see if there's any warrants out against you, all that sort of stuff. So that was useful. And I, I do think instead of being completely factually accurate, it's more important to seem authentic 
So sometimes you read a book and you can see that the, that the author's put a great deal of effort into research, but it gets in the road of the story. You know, you get a, a four-page description on an autopsy or something like that, and you go, ah, oh, they've, they've, they've sat in on an autopsy, you know, hat, you know, hats off to them. But does it advance the book? Um, and, you know, in, in, um, in courtroom dramas, whether they're on TV or in movies or on books, they never follow proper jurisprudence because a lot of court cases are really boring. And but you say you have things said in open court that would never be allowed to be said in front of a jury. Or you get judges saying something which they never say. Um, or you know, you get you get the prosecution summing up after the defence or something like that. So it's really the power of the story that's more important. And the response I've had from, from, um, from police who have read the books is they like it. And the reason they're reading it is not because they want to find out how a homicide investigation works, because they know that. And they know all the stuff about all the paperwork. And the teams tend to be really big. They're often working multiple cases at the same time. <coughs> you can't... You can't really put that in a in a book. The other thing in a in a crime in a proper police investigation, catching the killer is really the halfway point. Because then they've got to take it to trial. So they're constantly thinking about things like admissibility of evidence and chain of evidence and all those technical things. They don't want to read about that in a book either. So, so I think they're, they're like the rest of us. We want a little bit of, we want it to seem authentic, but on the other hand, we're reading there's a bit of a, a bit of an escape. Final question before I hand over to Jeff. You are uh, one of the country's top crime authors, living in possibly the safest city in the world at one of the safest times in history. Do you ever yearn for a little bit more danger? <laughs> no. Um, I have, so I've just been watching the news with the, you know, the, the war, if you want to call it that, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan, I went there, you know, it was the first place really post-Soviet Union when there was ethnic cleansing. As I've, I've, you know, I reported on the Taliban in the madrasas in Pakistan, and I went into Gaza with the Israeli shelling, and no, I, I'm, I'm very happy living in Canberra, thank you. And we're very happy having you here. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking Chris Hammer.